Hey, Rob here. And this episode of the Cricket Table Podcast is sponsored by Audible. Audible has thousands of audiobooks you have to check out. For instance, on this episode, you'll hear Karen Peterson and I dig deep into Jojo Rabbit. But you can't fully appreciate Taika Waititi's Oscar-winning screenplay without the novel the movie is based on, Christine Lunen's Caging Skies. To check out that title and so much more, start your free 30-day trial today over at audibletrial.com slash crookedtable. That's audibletrial.com slash crookedtable. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. This episode, we're uh, honored to welcome back to the show, Karen Peterson. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be back. So last time we talked about Bridget Jones's Diary, which is a completely different movie, kind of a comedy. I guess it's a testament to how broad the term comedy is that we're going from sort of a romantic comedy, modernized version of Pride and Prejudice to a uh, anti-hate satire about Nazis and, uh, you know, with a lot of controversy kind of behind it, which we'll get into. So before we talk about Jojo Rabbit, which was, I think, both of our favorite movies of 2019. Definitely mine. Yeah. 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 Um, Tell me a little bit about tell people a little bit about you know, who you are, what you have going on, and then your connection to Taika Waititi. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. So I write, I'm actually assistant editor for film and television at awardcircuit.com. And I also have a separate podcast called Citizen Dame, where uh, my co-host and I talk about film from entirely a female perspective. But over at Award Circuit, I cover films and television, mostly looking at things that are kind of in different awards races and things. And so Jojo Rabbit was one that was on my radar from the moment it was announced, mostly because I'm a huge fan of Taiko Waititi. And it was one of those movies where the first time I saw it, it was at a little screening room at the Fox Studios lot. And I sobbed through probably half Mm. of the movie. And This was in September. It was way before it ever came out in theaters. And I just knew right then that it was something really special that was going to stay with me. And it really was just immediately a favorite film of mine. And so it was really uh, a big honor for me. I mean, I've been a fan of Taika's since... uh, I guess it really started with What We Do in the Shadows, which was one that I saw... Yeah, well, it was such a funny thing because I was at the AFI Film Festival here in L.A. in 2014, and I was in line for the secret screening of Clint Eastwood's American Sniper, and (laughs) I was talking to someone else in line, as you do at festivals, and I asked, oh, well, what else have you seen that's good? And this lady's like, oh, my gosh, you've got to see this movie, What We Do in the Shadows. It's so funny. And she tells me a little bit about it. And they weren't having any more screenings at that festival. So I requested a screener from the publicist. And so I had to sit and watch it all by myself on a tiny laptop screen. <laughs> and I was just dying. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd seen in a long time. And so I've really been a fan of his ever since then. Um, and 
I don't I don't know. Like I know a lot of people loved Jojo Rabbit last year, but I honestly don't think anybody talked about it as much as I did. <laughs> well, that's why so, I mean that's kind of how this started, how this this conversation happened because <laughs> You know, the Taika Waititi news for uh, Star Wars came out, finally, yeah. like confirmed officially on StarWars.com. And mm-hmm. I immediately was like, I got to see what Karen thinks of this. So <laughs> I went to your Twitter and and I was, of course, validated by your enthusiasm for uh, a Waititi <laughs> Star Wars. And I was like, OK, we got to talk about Jojo Rabbit because I remember all award season that you were really you know, really like stumping for the movie. And I was kind of right, right there alongside alongside you. Like I, I really love, you know, Parasite and a lot of the other movies nominated. Uh, but there was something specific about Jojo Rabbit that spoke to me that I, that, you know, that kind of the, that emotional aspect that you were mentioning earlier, where like through half of it, you have like either a, like a lump in your throat or whatever. Like I watched it yeah. last night laying in bed on, uh, on my iPad, on my iPad mini, and I was still getting emotional. And this is like the probably, I don't know, probably fourth or fifth time I've seen it. Uh, mm-hmm. as yeah. if I was watching it for the first time. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree. I, I'm 100% behind you on that. And it was, I think, the controversy surrounding it, which I don't wonder if we should get that out of the way first, since it's kind of ridiculous and I don't want it to, like, hang over the whole conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah. What are your, what are you, kind of your reactions when you heard that people were, kind of I guess I guess getting it was anybody really offended by it or is it just something that the internet manifested what's kind of your your take on that oh no there were definitely people that were upset and as I remember the reviews some of the early reviews like out of Toronto uh that was where it made its debut mm-hmm. and I remember one of the Metacritic reviewers gave it a zero And I read his review and he was basically saying that it was just like a Marvel movie about Nazis. And (laughs) it was because ScarJo and Sam Rockwell are in it, I guess. What was the other connection? Because it's like this pastel colored movie and it's funny. He said it was very lightweight. It didn't have a lot of depth to it. And I'm like, yeah, dude, you need to go watch this movie again. But reading that review, it was really clear that he just doesn't like Taika Waititi's films, which Mm. is totally fair. You know, I mean, there's a lot of directors that I don't necessarily like their work, but they have huge fan bases. They win awards. Um, You know, I'm not going to name names. (laughs) That's for a different time. But uh but yeah, and so it's like, okay, you don't like this director, fine. But can you really sit there and honestly say that this movie is so bad, it deserves zero points? And that was really frustrating to see that happen. And then and then that just kind of landed this or launched this conversation with a lot of people where they're like, oh, man, look at that terrible Metacritic score. And so, I mean, it got to the point I went in. And I calculated if you took out the zero, like if you did Olympic rules and you took out the lowest and the highest score. (laughs) So I took out a zero and I took out one of the 100s and the average came out to like 80. Wow. (laughs) And I was just like, this is not as bad as everyone thinks it is. That one guy who just has this gripe is dragging down the average and people don't take the time to look deeper at what's going on. And so that was one of the problems. But it was really interesting because a lot of people were complaining. They thought that it it made Nazis look, it glamorized Nazis, that it didn't get into really how bad they were. Right. And 
to me, what was really the problem was that people were missing the point of the movie, mm-hmm. which is very common with satire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. If you don't get if you're not in on the joke, then, yeah, it's going to look like they think Nazis are, are fun. But if you're really paying attention, even if you don't get the joke, the text of the movie makes it very clear that this is not OK, that the characters in the story outside of Jojo Betzler, who is the 10 year old point of view character of the movie, like the rest of these characters all know that what's happening is terrible mm-hmm. and it's very clear. So it was one of those things where I think it, it was just odd to see so many people just flat out misreading the movie and jumping to conclusions that just were not there. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, we'll talk about more about the humor later, but it, it's so it's so exaggerated that I don't know how anybody thinks that they're in any way, shape or form glamorizing. Like I was like rolling my eyes when you said that I was like, really? The glamorizing? <laughs> Not, like, I feel like it does, yeah. if anything, the complete opposite. And it makes them look like, mm-hmm. you know, I could see maybe like buffoons. Some, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the exact word I'd written down. Um, it makes me feel like, you know, if, if, someone you know with a jewish heritage maybe watching this movie and they're like i don't think that's cool that they're making they're making light of this in this way that's a total valid take but i don't think it, glamorizing it is is like it's it, as far from the movie's intention as possible if anything it's just like look at these idiots how they just don't get it like and they're they're demonizing this race in such a ridiculous way. They have horns. They smell like Brussels sprouts. I mean, all of this stuff. It's like, seriously, how does anyone buy this at all? And that's why I think it, the opening is so strong too, not only with, with Jojo and Adolf, but also like the credits with, with the Mm -hmm. music kind of really playing up, like how they were like rock stars in the way back in the day, Nazis to certain people. And it's, um, you know, we're kind of getting ahead of things, but yeah, I, I, Well, one thing I think is really important to point out that keeps getting missed by a lot of people in these conversations uh, is the fact that Taika Waititi is half Jewish. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it was actually, it was funny. I think it was at the Oscars. Okay, this award season was crazy because I got to have experiences that I've never had before. And one of which, which I think... Uh, I was going to bring up and I forgot, but one of which was I got to actually present him an award. (laughs) He won. I'm part of the Hollywood Critics Association and he won the award for adapted screenplay. And I got to be the one to present it. And that was really a special, um, really special moment. It was crazy. But um, I was covering the Oscars. I was in the press room this year, my first time doing it. And it was it was amazing. The whole time I just kept thinking like at some point someone's going to realize I do not belong here. <laughs> I'm not cool enough to be in this room, but uh, I somehow fooled them all. So that was cool. But, um, <laughs> hope, but they never, hope they never hear this then. So you can get, I know, you know yeah. when, whenever the Oscars happens next time, whenever, <laughs> who knows what's going on with that. Yeah. That's a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. but I think it was during his backstage interview, someone asked him, about uh, about the fact that he is half Jewish and and how how did people re- respond to him once 
like people who didn't like the movie and were making complaints, had anybody like changed their tone once they found out that he was half Jewish? And he said something about like, yeah, I think I should have put that on the poster <laughs> made by a half Jewish director. <laughs> From the half Jewish director of, you know, whatever, Thor Ragnarok or whatever they put on this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I think that just kind of got lost on people. It's like, first of all, he is not, like you said, he's not glamorizing any of this. But second of all, he never would because of his own background and his mm-hmm. own family history. Right. And, so, and yeah, I also, you know, you got to you have to give him bonus points, not only for taking on this subject matter in such a bold way, but casting himself as Adolf Hitler <laughs> on top of yeah. it. I mean, just, you know. It, it, talk about commitment. It's just like, oh yeah, you you, you know you don't believe in you know this uh, th- this approach or this project. Well, I'm gonna put myself so far on the line that I will don the contact lenses, the little mustache, and the uniform, and I will be Adolf Hitler in this <laughs> uh, you know in this satirical look at Nazis and and um, we'll talk about all the parallels it's you really... can draw to today's world and all of that. Yeah. It's really funny talking to some of the people from the crew um, or even just listening to some of the actors talking about times where he'd be giving direction still in costume Mm -hmm. and he'd be kind of like, no, you need to do this or that. And then he'd step back and realize like, oh, wait, (laughs) I totally look like Adolf Hitler right now. I forgot about that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think we're pretty much keyed up to just like kind of transition into a deeper dive of the movie. So I'm going to cue up a little bit of the trailer and then we will get into it. So here's a little bit of the trailer for Jojo Rabbit right now. Here's Master Jojo. You're a top man. Prepare to leave the house. Today you boys will be involved in such activities as war games, Ah! ambush techniques, and blowing stuff up. I don't think I can do this. Was? Of course you can. comes to. When I was your age, I had an imaginary friend. Got me in so much trouble. Kids, it's time to burn some books. Yeah! You're growing up too fast. Ten-year-olds shouldn't be celebrating war and talking politics. Hi, Hitler. I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism. <laughs> Did you know Jews can read each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? They could look just like us. Hi. That was a little bit of the trailer for Jojo Rabbit from 2019, written and directed by Taika Waititi. So, Karen, you mentioned up front that you wanted Oscar to talk winner, about Taika Waititi. That's true. I, that's true. You're you're ahead of me. You mentioned up front that you wanted to talk about the book Caging Skies that Jojo Rabbit is based on. That uh, YTT won the Oscar, as you mentioned, for his best adapted screenplay and sort of the differences there. So explain to listeners just how completely he rewrote this uh, source material. Oh, man. Yeah, it's it's funny because I had seen the movie several times and I just kept, you know, every time it says based on the novel Caging Skies by Christine Lennon. So finally, I was just like, I've really got to read this book. I want to know how like how did she write this? Cause I knew that it was different, but I didn't know how different. And so I started reading it and it, from the very beginning of it, it's just like, wow, this is not even close to <laughs> the same story. Basically the, 
the character names are the same. Um, and it's set in World War II. He's a <laughs> part of Hitler's youth. <laughs> That's pretty much where the similarities end. I mean, the novel is really about... Um, basically, Jojo is much older in in the book. He's 17. The reason he is, is not able to go off to war is because of this injury that he sustained. So there's a little bit of a similarity there, but he lost his arm. He lost his mm. hand. So he's unable to fight. He's not just, you know, got a limp and, and some scars on his face. He's right. severely injured. And so he's stuck at home. He ends up in this obsession with Elsa and keeps hers. Like the war ends halfway through the book and he keeps her locked up. So we're spoiling the movie, right? <laughs> no, it's all good. It's fine. <laughs> okay. People have had time to see it. Go see Jojo That's Rabbit. We I both love it. Like, <laughs> it's, you can rent it for two bucks on Redbox. Right. Exactly. Whatever. So, um, but yeah, so at the end when he lies to her and tells her that Germany won the war and she has to stay. Well, that happens in the book, but that's the, that's at the halfway point. And so then he keeps that lie going for years and yeah. And so it's, it's very dark. It's very disturbing and it's very deeply unsettling. Whereas the movie, when you tell that similar story, but you remember that this kid is 10 years Mm -hmm. old and literally has no one else in the world. It makes that situation much different. And um, at the Oscars, I got to ask Taika a question about adapting the the book. And he was saying, because I asked him, like, because it's so dark and dramatic. And he's like, yeah, Christine Lunens knew I was incapable of making a drama. It had to be a comedy. And I was just like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot. Obviously, you lose the sympathy for the character. if That's what's happening oh, for totally. so long. But also him being much younger, I think he's kind of by nature more endearing because you can see, like from the very beginning of the movie, you can see that he is kind of uneasy with everything that's happening around him. Like he, you know, in the Hitler youth camp, they're killing the animals or they're burning the books. And he's like very like hesitant to participate, even though he puts up this front of, Oh, you know, Panther courage and all this stuff in the beginning of the movie. It's like, he's trying to psych himself up so that he can, like Elsa says later, belong to a club. Basically he's trying to, to, to push aside the, the, I, I guess the goodness in himself basically. And I think that that's a lot easier to buy with a 10 year old than it is with a teenager because they are so like even more so sort of impressionable and, and partially formed. Like they don't even know really who they're, who they are at all when they're 10, let alone 17. So I think that that's, yeah, that's definitely a critical turn. And to that point that you mentioned, just, I want to make sure I threw this out there when he does lie to her, about the war and saying that says that Germany won this movie is so has such a deft tonal balance that I was thinking to myself, is he going to tell her the truth? Is, is she going to like panic and kill herself while she's in the crawl space? Like I had no idea which way this was going to go because the movie like shifts uh, effortlessly though, but shifts from like absurdist comedy with like the Nazi clones to, you know, later Jojo finding his mother hanging in the, like the town square. So, I mean, it's, I, you know, I think that that, that moment really hinges on kind of that, um, 
the combination of, of genres that that Taika pulls off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And well, and the fact that Jojo is 10 in, in his story is really important because ultimately this is a story about hope. Mm-hmm. And when we look at how to change the world, we always have to look to the next generation and a 17 year old. Well, he starts off in the book 17, but by the end of it, he's in his mid twenties. So that's an adult. That's a fully formed human being who has already basically become who they're going to be. And there's not much that's going to change that person. Yeah. When you look at a 10 year old, yeah, that's that's the future right there. And he can see the world differently. He can learn the errors of the world that he's grown up in. Because if you think about it, this is 1945 that this is taking place, 44, 45. In Germany and Austria, the war started in 38, 39. So this has been his entire conscious life. Mm-hmm. He's never known a world that wasn't at war. Right. And he doesn't have, I mean, as the movie really highlights, he doesn't have his father around. So he's kind of mm-hmm. hinged his like parental, uh, you know, his uh, his father figure by basically kind of looking in at Adolf Hitler for that. So he has an imaginary Hitler that he kind of runs things off of. And another aspect of this movie that's not in the book, if I'm correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's no Adolf Hitler character. Um he definitely uh, reveres the Fuhrer, mm-hmm. but he doesn't see him because he's way older than that. And he's past the point of imaginary friends. But um, but yeah, I think that that relationship is really significant. Um, and it's one that's easy. This is, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about before. This is really easy to misunderstand because when you're watching it, you forget sometimes that this isn't just a story that's being told to us as it happened. This is a story that's being filtered through the experience of a child right? and through the mind of a child. And so everything like this isn't supposed to be a literal interpretation of who Hitler was. This is how a kid understood who Hitler was. Right. And so the things that happen, the conversations they have are a 10 year old kids imaginings. And I think you'd need, it's like, if you take that character out, I could see people having much more issue with this. But the fact that Hitler's uh, portrayal is so over the top and so, so buffoonish and so satirical and to the point where, you know, he, he's making most of the jokes and a lot of at a lot of <laughs> points throughout the movie. Um, he also kind of gives us more of the surrealist side with like he's eating the unicorn head for dinner and and things like that. Um, I think it, it it helps us really track jojo's development over the course of the story where at the very beginning he's like oh am i ready for that i don't know if i'm ready for this adolf and like you looking for him for approval for confidence for a validation and then by the end he's like fuck off hitler and kicks him out the window Mm -hmm. and i think that that's kind of you know you need to you need to have that for a movie that's supposed to obviously show not tell you need that dynamic to kind of visualize his internal struggle and his journey and is kind of becoming over the course of the movie. So I I think that's, you know, I mentioned, but I want to sort of break the movie down by Jojo's three relationships. If I'm not mistaken, I think there's only two scenes that he's not in or that we're not seeing from his perspective. And those are the two with Elsa and Rosie. 
Um, yeah. So maybe we should cover those two scenes first, or we can wait till we get to the Jojo and Rosie stuff. Uh, what, do you, what do you prefer? Do you want to do Jojo and Adolf or hit the Elsa and Rosie stuff first? Well, we've already been talking about Adolf, so let's just finish that one up. Cool. So first of all, Roman Griffin Davis, how did he not get any like Oscar nomination or, or any like he didn't really get much awards attention for this? If well, I, he, 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 he little got bit nominated. Yeah, I think he got nominated for Golden Globe or Critics That's Choice, right. maybe both. I can't remember. Um I'm pretty sure he was, I don't know. Yeah, he did get a Golden Globe nomination for sure. Okay. Yeah. And the thing is, like, he was very much in the conversation for an Oscar Oscar nomination, but it was was a tight year. And this is actually, (laughs) this is part of the conversation I started earlier today where um, just because somebody didn't get nominated doesn't mean they were snubbed necessarily. I don't think that people just completely looked past him. It is hard for children to be nominated for Oscars, especially boys. Especially for the leading performances too. Yeah. And there's no way you could like category fraud this into supporting. It's literally the title character. So. Right. Right. Exactly. But there were probably 10 solid possible contenders for best actor this year. Any, any five out of those 10 would have made perfect sense. And Roman was one of those 10. So um, it's, it's like, oh, man, he's so great, and I would have loved to have seen it happen. But at the same time, it's like, well, you know, but we got a, a really good lineup. Yeah, so. yeah. He's he's amazing in this movie, and it's his first film, too. So, uh, you know, just right off the bat, I, I let's talk a little bit about, I guess, his performance and sort of that opening with Hitler. I think we kind of we set some of that up. So what do you think... Uh, what do you think makes this character, I guess we kind of talked about it already, but what do you think makes Jojo so, so empathetic, even when he's, even when he's doing like terrible things in this movie, (laughs) when he's like tearing Elsa down and things like that. I think the fact that it's informed by this imaginary relationship with Adolf, I think you you really understand where he's coming from. And I, I really just, I love that we're, so uh, on board with this character and so invested in his uh, in his perspective. Well, it helps that he's really freaking adorable. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> and you just like you just want to protect him and keep him safe, you know. And and with his best friend Yorkie, who oh man, shout uh, out to Archie Yates too. Yeah, that seriously. those two are just. I seriously still want some kind of movie where those two play younger versions of Nick Frost and Simon Pegg. I, I <laughs> just don't know why that hasn't happened yet. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's easy to root for the kid because he's really cute and sweet. Like he just has that innocent sweetness about him, even when he's saying and doing terrible things. Um, he's not. He's not really a brat. There's a couple moments where you start to see a little brattiness come out, mm-hmm. but we've already seen enough of his sweetness that we understand like he's just kind of a kid having a bad day and he's having a little bit of a tantrum right now. But but yeah, from the beginning when we first meet him giving himself a pep talk and we've all been in that situation where we're really nervous about something that we're also really excited about and you kind of have to psych yourself up for it. And then he goes and it's it's hard and there's scary things that he has to do and there's mean kids picking on him and you know we're just right away 
in his corner because of that. So it's easy to stay with him throughout because you also understand where he's coming from when he does things like lie to Elsa or when he gets mad at his mom for not telling him the truth or, you know, those kinds of things, you understand his, his perspective and that really matters. And that's set up so beautifully right from the first scene. And the movie, I think wisely spends, you know, a while with just Jojo and Adolf, like, you don't see mm-hmm. his mother until, I don't know, 50, 20 minutes in, something like that. Or or obviously, yeah. obviously Elsa even comes after. So you're really just living in his headspace. And this is who he has to kind of keep him company uh, for the most part. So that's his main influence. And that's obviously, you know, sort of the reflection of his own kind of insecurities. And um, I just, I love some of the things when that Adolf, I wrote on some of the, the funny things that he does in here. He made the joke about... <laughs> Um, what is the one he says? Oh, and then the library is one of the things that I really oh, yeah. loved. Where he's like, oh, yeah, we'll build books and we'll build a, a fake floor that falls through. She could fall into like spikes and bacon. And then he's like, <laughs> libraries are dumb. And I'm like, wow, I, I really love the way that they're portraying Nazis in this. Um, and, and I think that some of that humor just is, I don't know, too subtle for some people, I guess, even though it feels like it's pretty obvious to me. Uh, what do you, you know, let, let's talk a little more about Waititi and his kind of genius parody of a, like a megalomaniac and how sadly it feels very relevant today. Yeah, yeah, it does definitely. But I think what's genius about it, you already kind of mentioned it a little bit, but that's how he starts off at the beginning. You see this version of Adolf who is he's there cheering Jojo on like, here's my perfect little supporter who loves me and, and you can do it, man. You're great. And as time goes on, as the story goes and as Jojo is learning and understanding more of the world and starting to question the things that he thought were good and right, you see that, that starting to crumble with Adolf, he becomes more pedantic. He becomes more, uh, more childish, um, that scene where he's telling Jojo, like, get your shit together and grow mm-hmm. up. And then he kicks the chair and spits in the soup, you know, <laughs> it's <laughs> like those little moments. They're really funny, but they're also really, uh, really a good visual representation of Jojo starting to understand how ridiculous this line is. And by the end, when Adolf comes in and he's shot himself in the head and there's a (laughs) bleeding head wound there and he's freaking out and he's just begging for Jojo as one good supporter. Yeah. (laughs) And, and it's, it's really brilliant the way that it just goes, you know, on this descent from the beginning to the end. And I just think the way that Taika does that, it's always Adolf shows up always just at the right moment, mm-hmm. um, either in a time where Jojo is. It's usually when he's feeling some sort of really emotional or conflict, moment. or like yeah, like mm-hmm. starting to mm-hmm. starting to care about Elsa, but then also feeling like wait, this this is a Jewish girl. I should you know be you know keeping her at a distance. And then he that's when I think he comes in. He's like in uh, yeah. Jojo's like. Um, you know, she doesn't seem like a bad person, that kind of thing, trying to like rationalize it within himself. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I love all of that. And I, the little detail too, when he goes in and, and Hitler is laying in uh, Jojo's bed, 
Uh-huh. And then he's like, oh, yeah, you know. None of this oh, should be weird. <laughs> none of this should be weird. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking to myself, all of this is weird. <laughs> Everything yeah. in this this whole storyline is, you know, especially is weird. Um, the nonsense, the kind of like him ranting and the, the way that Taika just does like this, you know, um, kind of his riffing on, you know, the old footage of of Hitler, like giving out at a rally. <laughs> just kind of yelling mm-hmm. about uh oh it's, it's so good the little details it's 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 such a hilarious portrayal but also makes kind of a ballsy unfortunately ballsy political statement did you know karen did you know that nazis are bad i don't know if uh <laughs> really because i've been watching the news these last couple wait, wait, of years wait, wait. and which, i thought they were i thought they were mostly good which news channel i guess it's just the detail <laughs> Uh, definitely not that one, but, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but, um, and you see that with, with Adolf, obviously, uh, kind of unraveling and you see that with Sam Rockwell as Captain K. So what do you think of <sighs> Yeah, let's talk about Captain yeah, K. Cause I know that was a lot, a big one that a lot of people were kind of pointing at like, well, they're trying to humanize the Nazis and all of that, uh, especially after Rockwell's similar kind of, uh, performance in three billboards. Uh, in kind of you know, which was also accused of, well, you're humanizing this this racist cop and that kind of thing. So, what is your what are your thoughts on Rockwell's performance here and how that character's sort of uh, self sacrifice kind of at the end? Yeah, well, okay, I I want to say I do not think that the two characters are similar, and I do think well, that, that, was that the, they were kind that of humanizing in, yeah. in in three billboards. But uh, the thing is, if you really listen to his dialogue in Jojo Rabbit it's very clear that he knows Mm -hmm. what they're fighting for and what they're doing is stupid. But he's at the point where he, he has not been able to live his own life according to what he wants. He's, he's gay. He's a homosexual man who is not allowed to be a homosexual man in 1930s and forties Germany. Someone I was talking to one day was like, Oh, the homoeroticism between him and Alfie Allen. I'm like, are you stupid? (laughs) They were gay. They were in a relationship, but they couldn't be in a relationship. Like, this is not, that was an important part of that character. And because of the things that he had done, the things that he saw, the things that his country was about, and the world that he, the person that he really truly was inside he saw no other way than just, well, you know, I'm just going to die gloriously. I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. That's what he wanted from the moment we meet him Mm -hmm. at the Hitler youth weekend. He says it like, I can't, you know, they won't let me go glory, you know, march into glorious death. Like, and as you go through the movie, he makes these comments and he talks about like, like there's a point where Jojo comes in and says, I have a question about Jews. And he's like, Oh God, like what now? Like I'm tired <laughs> of talking about Jews, you know? And, right. and it's like, yeah, he's totally over this war. He knows it's stupid and wrong, but he can't do anything about it. Otherwise he'll be executed. And as much as he is prepared to die and is totally happy and willing to do that, he also doesn't want to just be shot in the street either. Mm-hmm. He has some element of self-preservation. There's a little bit, a little bit of a parallel too, I think maybe between him and Rosie, who they're both stuck in this shitty situation on opposite sides. And it's just mm-hmm. the difference is that Rosie's trying to fight and he's just completely given up and yeah. you know how he actually kind of becomes more of a, a, a like kind of 
twisted father figure to Jojo in a way than Adolf does by the end of it. And then the, kind of the... But has he yeah. completely given up, though? Uh, I mean, he's not really... I mean, there's not really a whole lot he can do, like you said. He's just kind of making the best of a bad situation, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. Like, he's not willing to put a bullet in his own mouth. Um, right. He's just kind of just living and like, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But the thing is that even though he on the outside is still very much a Nazi and he's still very much, he's training these kids, he's working with the kids, whatever. And he has thoughts about that, but he's not doing anything about it. And he's helping prepare for this invasion that's coming. But then when he has the opportunity to turn in Jojo Mm -hmm. and Elsa, he doesn't do that. He saves them at the very end. He chases off Jojo and, and says, Oh, that kid's Jew he saves Jojo's life twice. And I think that that's someone who sees not that he sees a future for himself, but this comes back to what I was saying before about Jojo being a 10 year old kid and he's the hope in that next generation. And I think that's what captain K sees is like, it's too late for me, but it's not too late for, for these guys. Like there's still hope for the future. Right. And that's a really sweet moment with him and, and uh, Jojo where he's saying, you know, sorry about your mom. She was a good person, like a real, like a real good person. Um, and then kind of, you know, pushes him out, basically. One thing I noticed on this viewing that I don't think I picked up on at least the first time was it seems to me that he headed, he had specifically to Jojo's house because he knows that the Gestapo is on the way. I, yeah. I don't I didn't pick up on that the first time. Like I just oh he happened to be there. That's convenient. But then I picked up on earlier in the movie because he says oh you tell me we tell the SS they tell the Gestapo blah blah blah. So he's obviously in the headquarters. So he must have heard about the suspicions probably about JoJo's mom. Rushed over there to make sure JoJo didn't get kind of caught in the middle of everything. And I I yeah I think the difference between this character and the one in Three Billboards is that 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 guy completely believes in. His ideology is sound at the beginning of the movie. And this guy's is already <laughs> broken in half long before we, you know, Jojo rolls up onto the Hitler youth weekend there. So uh, I think, well, and yeah, go for it. Yeah. Well, the thing about Captain K is we don't know anything about who he was before. Mm-hmm. Um, we only know that at this point he's just kind of like, eh, fuck it, whatever. I'm sorry. Can I say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've already thrown okay. a couple out there. Go for it. <laughs> Okay. Um, I usually ask ahead of time. Though. Um, but yeah, and that's just kind of his attitude now. But we don't know. Did he join the party because he had to to protect himself? Or did he at the beginning actually think like, yeah, sure, Hitler's got some good ideas. I, I tend to think that that's probably he, he joined because of he because he had to mm-hmm. not ever because he wanted to. Right. Um, but he also, I mean, part of that conversation that he has with Jojo and when he's saying like, yeah, your mom was a, an actual good person. I think there's, that's tinged with some regret because he couldn't be that good of a person himself. He didn't have the courage and the strength in himself to do what she did. He just kind of went along to, to survive. Right. And I think his sexuality is obviously the motivation behind that. I think you know, mm-hmm. when the Nazis were coming up, it was like, well, I, I, I guess I, in order to hide the fact that, 
you know, the fact that I'm a gay man in this environment, I guess, sure, I can't beat him, join him. Uh, but yeah. I, don't, I don't see anything in that character to really lead me to believe that, oh, yeah, he was all about this once upon a time. Um, right. As opposed to Stephen Merchant's character or Rebel <laughs> Wilson's character or... I mean, honestly, we don't know where Alfie Allen sits exactly, but he's even he seems more into it than Captain K does. <laughs> even Rebel Wilson, though, it's like <laughs> I question that a little bit just because. And, and that's the thing. It's like she's definitely on board with it. But I don't know if I don't know what her motivations are either, because like she makes that comment about I've given birth to 18 children <laughs> for Germany. It's like, well, no, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's like she's totally fine lying and we just we don't know anything about if we don't get a sense like she definitely says things that make it clear that she's lying and she knows that she is but we also mm-hmm. don't know if it's because of like Captain K she's just trying to protect herself or if it's because like well I'll say whatever I have to cuz I believe in this right i guess i don't my, really know yeah i guess my big thing pointing to with with her is when the fighting goes down, Captain K finds a way to save Jojo. And she's just like, here, go take wear this jacket and go, uh, right. go make sure this. Yeah, take this gun and just try and take it. So basically sending these little kids out to like suicide missions, essentially, yeah. with no. Go give them know, a hug. Hesita- yeah, <laughs> give them a hug. God, and, which and that's, is so sick are, to be laughing like the, about it. But. Yeah, those are the darkest. That's the darkest part of like the darkest jokes in the movie. I think is that that moment there yeah. where she's like literally. Go ahead and go go say hi to the American soldiers. <laughs> Welcome to well, Germany, and basically. And, yeah, and and here go go shoot anybody who looks different from us, right. and that's what she tells Yorkie. And and it's interesting to see that coming from a woman who's supposed to naturally be protective and maternal, and here mm-hmm. she is sending these children off to their death. And I think that's a really interesting moment and a really interesting choice. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. She's the most unabashed of all of, of all the Nazi characters uh-huh. in this movie. Yeah. Uh, I really also like the, um, well, the moment where Jojo Rabbit gets his name and how that plays in later on when he sees the drawing of him looking at the rabbit cage and sort of trying to kind of question which, which version of the rabbit he is, I guess, what the Nazis say that he is, the cowardly little rabbit, or what his version of Adolf told him that he is, the, the brave you know, the brave rabbit who's out there hunting and all that stuff. And I, I think that I wanted to make sure I mentioned that moment at the while we're on the Hitler youth thing, because I really love that. Uh, not only the, you know, like I said, the moment he gets the name, but just the way that it's kind of threaded throughout. Yeah. And well, and just there's so much in that moment where uh, it's like, that's part of what makes you really root for Jojo, because mm-hmm. you're like, oh, he's just so sweet even though he thinks this is right and he thinks that in the moment he can do what he has to do, he can't even kill a rabbit because it's this innocent creature. Right. And I think that that actually ties in really beautifully to this relationship with Elsa is like, he could go turn her in and it's easy to say that the reason he doesn't is to protect himself and to protect his mom. But I think it's also partly just because when it comes down to it and he knows what will happen to everyone involved, he just, he can't, he can't do it because he doesn't have it in him. He's, he's too good in his heart. Right. Yeah. And he's just kind of fighting against that inner goodness. You get the whole scene where with the grenade where he gets injured. And, uh, I love that, that the shock (laughs) of that moment one. And then I love the, 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 like 
POV montage of him in the hospital being dragged back and forth and everybody's reaction, uh, York yeah. is screaming and Hitler kind of like <laughs> fainting. And, and then you get that moment of that, like first moment of clarity in that little montage where it quiets down for a moment where you hear Rosie entering in. And I think this is a kind of the good transition to that relationship because this is in a lot of ways, the heart of the movie. And this storyline is, I think where I get the most like emotional, um, mm-hmm. just because, you know, say what you will about Scarlett Johansson as a person and the roles that she's taking on. There's plenty of controversy with all of that. Um, but she is so great in this movie. And she was actually in three movies that I loved last year with Avengers <laughs> and Marriage Story. I'm like, how did ScarJo end up like with three movies in my top 10? I don't understand. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, where she she just comes in as this beacon of light in this really dark and fucked up world. Uh, where she enters and she, you know, you hear the first thing you hear her say is the calling her my darling cub. And th- this just the I don't know. What, what do you what would you, what do you think about the introduction of that character? And then we'll get into that relationship because it's hugely impactful, if not as much, if possibly more than uh, his relationship with Elsa to kind of the turn towards the end. Yeah, I mean, that that first moment where we really get to see Jojo and his mother talking Mm -hmm. and they have that conversation and uh, she talks about how she worries about him. And then they just very briefly mention his sister who has died. And you just, it's so quick, so quickly passed over. And it almost Mm -hmm. like, I mean, it probably was the first two or three times that I watched it. I didn't catch that he was saying Inga lion. I didn't know what he was saying. Um, and that it was in reference to his sister, but, um, it's, you just, you really get to, to know so much about Rosie in that moment, because even though you don't necessarily know right away, um, what side she's on and what she's doing, you know, that she is a mom who has lost a child already. She just almost lost her other one. Uh, the only other person she has left in the world um, who knows where her husband is? Supposedly he's still alive and hiding out and, and you know, resisting, but he's probably dead in all honesty. Mm. And um, and it's just such a beautiful introduction to her character. And she's this ray of warmth and sunshine for him. And she is basically Jojo's entire world. And to see her not be this like stern German mother that you might be expecting, but instead to be this very positive, artistic, happy, light person. It's, it's really beautiful. And when they get ready to go and, and they're going out and he says, is it dangerous? And she says, extremely. And it's like, just this, she's got this very, like, we can do this. We're, Mm -hmm. we're good, you know? And just so, Um, she's such a champion for him. And I just, I love that. And I love that this is the way that we get to meet her. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of little moments. I did note the first real scene between the two of them with the Inga lion and just like the way she talks to him and then she like kind of nuzzles up against him. And um, yeah, she's, she's, she is the, the goodness, the good side of, of uh, Jojo sort of personified. And I think, the, the what makes her storyline so compelling is that yeah she's resisting the war and she's fighting it that way but she's really in her own home fighting a battle for her son's soul she's trying to 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 
turn him away from there, or at least to keep the good side of himself alive long enough until the war can can be over. Because at this point, as Captain K mentioned, they're already he's like, oh, even though we're not doing so great, apparently we're we're winning we're winning the war. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. there it's already Germany's not in the best position at this point already. So I think she is trying to save as many people as she can, obviously including Elsa, but also trying to keep her son tethered to the ground. I mean, there's that beautiful conversation with Elsa later where they're talking about, you know, maybe we're all ghosts, she says now. And it's it's kind of like she's trying to keep her son from fading away the way that, the, like you said, the other two people in her family have already done. And it's really this, how much the, the Betzler household has suffered because of this war and because of, you know, in, in the last... I don't know if they, I guess, I don't know if they say exactly how long it's been since Inga died, but it doesn't seem like it's been that long. Yeah, I think, I think it's probably been about, well, she, it's been within the last three years because she was 14 when that passport photo was taken. Yeah. And, um, and she would have been 17. So it's been in somewhere in the last three years during the war, which is why nobody would really know that Inga Mm -hmm. died because like nothing is normal anymore. But, um, but one of the things that I, I think is just heartbreaking about Rosie's story and, and that you just really feel for her is that she's in this this very horrible predicament with her son. Like the only way to protect her son is to let him be part of something that's so hateful and terrible that she is fighting against. And she can't tell him the truth. She can't tell him what these people really are all about. She has to... She has to face the choice of risking his life and her own if he knows what's really going on or letting him grow up in a world where he becomes this terrible, hateful person. And I just I can't imagine as a I'm not a mother, but I can't imagine being a mother and having to make this choice to let your son think it's okay to hate people in order to keep him safe, that that's the only way to do that. Mm hmm. She's constantly sort of towing that line and trying to <laughs> trying to relate to her son in what he would perceive as inoffensive ways, like almost all the time. Like it's like it reminds me of nowadays trying to like talk to your parents or go into Thanksgiving <sighs> yeah. and be like, uh, let's just not talk politics at all. She's like, this table <laughs> is Switzerland, you know, um, uh-huh. she's, she's trying to you know teach him about life and teach him about oh, you know, dancing is what you do, you know, dancing's for people who are free and and this is what it's like to be in love. And and uh, she has such a wry, sort of sarcastic sense of humor. Like some of the things that she says are, are just so funny. Um, she, says, she says something like, um, oh, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm cursed to look incredibly attractive. <laughs> sort of one of the, one of the, one of the instances where yeah. it's like ScarJo reminding us that she's ScarJo in that moment. We're like, oh yeah, that's right, you are. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the other one that I like that I, I always think of too, when they're, uh, he's telling, he tells her that he heard something and she starts to panic and, <laughs> and he's, uh, you know, then he says, Oh, I heard a ghost. And she says, Oh, how sad for you. She's like, but it's sadder for me because I have to live with a crazy person. <laughs> Just like the way that she kind of deflates that, like sort of that sort of self seriousness that he has. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful, um, a beautiful model for being positive in a really shitty time, and also for trying to, trying to focus on the good stuff and keeping your kids' light life as light and positive and upbeat and optimistic. 
which I know is synonym for positive, but you know where I'm getting at, uh, mm-hmm. as possible. And, and, you know, even like tying his shoes and so that he kind of falls over. And that's the other thing. The shoe thing is so well seated throughout this movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. And the first time that you're watching it, you don't really mm-hmm. pick up on, it's like, okay, he's getting therapy. And so then his mom's standing right next to him. And so that's his view or when they're out for their bike ride and she's standing up on the wall and dancing around. And that's his view because that's how, that's how high that wall is. And, and so you don't realize until that turn how significant the shoes are, right. but it's so well done so that in that moment when Jojo's following a butterfly, a beautiful butterfly as you know, it's starting to turn from winter into spring and he follows it. And then all of a sudden there's his mother's shoes and you know, immediately what it means without them having to drill it into you. Mm -hmm. And that's part of, that's part of what makes this film so brilliant is that that's a shift in tone. It's a shift in message. It's a shift in, in just overall, this is what this story is, but it feels natural and it feels right. And the timing of it is very perfect. Everything about that, the color palette changes, the music changes. And it's, it's just such a, it's just so well done that it doesn't feel like your emotions are being manipulated it just feels like you're feeling exactly what Jojo is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a complete gut punch. And mm-hmm. uh, the way that it's not only is it set up well with, you know, them, them even seeing the hanging bodies early on and Jojo already obviously on the side of the Nazis is still sort of like, wait, wait, what did they do? Like he doesn't even like even completely understand what's going on with that. And, uh, and she says, you know, what they could which is echoes like there's so much in what in Rosie that you see embodied in Jojo by the end of the movie, obviously with his, her shoes going on Elsa, but also he says the extremely line. He says, you know, uh, Jojo, you know, today you're 10, 10 and a half years old, just do what you can. Uh, so when that moment happens, it, it, it is such a, it's like thematically, continues the through line as well because she was telling him about the butterfly what it feels like to have uh, to be in love the butterflies in your stomach and so mm-hmm. just when he starts to be like uh, to to understand or come around to his, his mom's way of thinking and things are starting to look up it's like the, the the rug is pulled completely out from under him and you know you it's the one moment where we sort of see him unabashedly um not not fighting his emotions he's not conflicted he's not you know, say he, there's no moment where he is out in the square, sees his mother's body, which again, as you mentioned, they tight white uh, does so tastefully where you see the shoes. They don't need to, we don't get a shot of like Scarjo's bloated corpse or anything. It's just very yeah. graceful and uh, intimate in a way without ever going above her ankles. Um, that, that he is just like clinging to her legs, not even, you know, even though these are obviously people that are uh, opposing the Nazi party and that probably doesn't look the greatest to the people around that he's, you know, such so, so, so sympathetic to them, to what's, what's happening. It's just like, it's the one moment where he's just completely emotionally barren uh, as we are. And, and it's, it's just, it's a, 
if it wasn't for one other scene that we haven't really talked about yet, it it probably my my uh, favorite scene in the movie. But I think there's one other one with Rosie that I, I that trumps it barely, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, what's really beautiful too about that moment in a very heartbreaking and sad way, mm-hmm. um, but it's the way that he goes. I mean, who knows how many hours he sat there because there is that that wide shot where he's sitting and he's just looking up at her and it's heartbreaking. And I'm actually getting emotional again, just thinking about it. But, um, oh man. And how good is Roman in that scene? It's just, it blows my mind that this 10 year old kid who had never been in a movie before was able to do and carry this emotional weight that he did. But, but then what's really, um, even just takes that, emotional moment to the next level is how without any dialogue, it's just music, just score. It shows him at some point he got up and left and went home and he just walks into Elsa's room Mm -hmm. and without saying a word, he just walks up with his knife and stabs her in the shoulder and he doesn't have to tell her what happened. Elsa knows immediately what happened because of the way that he just crumbles to the floor and it's just done so well because when, whenever you can convey that kind of emotion and convey a very believable communication between two characters without having to say a word and the audience knows what's happening, the characters know what's happening. I mean, that's just really brilliant filmmaking. Plus, she he um, while he's still there, he ties his mother's shoes in the way that she was yeah, teaching him earlier. He tries which, to, yeah, yeah, which again is is sort of like uh, he, the movie demonstrating the lessons and the values that he's learned from her, sort of passing that like symbolically passing that off, and then the uh, the buildings, the sort of quiet shots of the buildings surrounding where the windows look like eyes. So it's just mm-hmm. it silently just reiterates the fact that. This is a public space. She's running around passing out, you know, anti-Nazi uh, paraphernalia, I guess, um, that it's it's inevitable that someone was going to see what was going on and kind of put two and two together and sort of how the, the Nazi party has eyes everywhere. And I thought it was really, really kind of uh, gentle and uh, a lovely way to express that without, again, without having to to resort to dialogue and, and just kind of blatantly putting it out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And well, and, and I mean, she was already on the radar of the party even before mm-hmm. that. Um, but yeah, I think that you make a really good point with those eyes and, and it's, I think that they serve two purposes. I think one is definitely, yeah, every, everything you do is being watched. There's nothing that's secret. And also just like there's there's just this sense of this town as still being like this living thing. Like the town hasn't died, even though everything is going badly. There's still people there Mm -hmm. and there's still something to to fight for. Uh, I want to talk about what I alluded to earlier is my favorite Rosie scene. And that is the dinner sequence that I sort of mentioned Mm -hmm. already where she comes in dancing because she's getting a sense that the war is, is on its last legs. The, uh, just the, the early part of that scene with the humor where she's chewing on the grapes, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> and now I 
you know, now I, I reference that sometimes. But then the <laughs> emotional complexity that happens where y- you know, we know that he knows about Elsa and that he knows that this food is meant to be for Elsa upstairs. And the way that it turns when she just kind of in a huff gets up and uh, puts the, the kind of the soot beard on and plays both roles of herself and her husband in the dynamic with the child. We get a sense for what that family life was like. We get the complexity of her kind of knowing that perhaps she's going a little too far and kind of snapping at her son while she's in character, but then also kind of also peeling that, that back and revealing sort of the, the, the tender side of, uh, of that, the family. And it just, you could see the conflict in her eyes when she's, when she's doing that and she's going back and forth and sort of, it kind of evolves into her and her son dancing alone. Uh, and it, it just, there's so much, I just, I don't know, for some reason it's one of those, <laughs> it's just such a pure, strangely life affirming moment in this middle of this Nazi satire. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Well, and I love to typical 10 year old boy, like when he when she's pretending to be both parents, and Mm -hmm. they're like, being all kissy face and dancing. And he's sitting there like covering his eyes, like he's embarrassed (laughs) of his mom right then. (laughs) Even though no one else is around to witness what's happening. He's just like, Oh, gosh, mom, you're so embarrassing. And it's just like, yeah. (laughs) It's just so cute and funny and sweet. And like you said, yeah, it's this beautiful moment of humanity and in the middle of something really terrible. And, and it's also interesting how Jojo at 10 years old, he's the kid in this situation, but he knows more than his, well, he doesn't know more than his mom does, but he knows more than she knows that he does. Mm -hmm. And he's a lot more aware of what's really happening than she realizes. And, um, I think that's part of what makes that conversation so interesting is watching the the sort of the chess between the two of them mm. as they're both trying to not let the other one know what they know. <laughs> right. And it's just the, the layers of Rosie trying to keep it together and trying to do the best she can to parent her son in this environment. It's yeah. it's just like it's it's there's so much going on in, in those performances in that moment. I that scene always really stands out to me, other than obviously the, you know, her her body being discovered later on it's as one of those everything actually every now that i'm thinking about it kind of everything rosie in this movie really gets me i had a conversation with someone a couple months ago about i think it must have been right after the oscar nominations and someone was really mad that scarlet had gotten nominated over thomas and mckenzie which i mean i would love to have seen thomas in get nominated absolutely i think she was so great in a perfect world they both would have been um but i they were like scarlet's hardly even in it and she doesn't have that important of a role it's just because of her name and i was just like whoa 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 whoa. how many times have you seen the movie once okay go do me a favor go watch it again and then come back and tell me what you think and he came back and he's just like wow you were right i just didn't realize how much of an impact she has and how important her role is and i was like yeah no she's She's really significant to the story. Even when she's not there, her presence is felt. Mm-hmm. And and in the scenes where she is there, she makes such a huge, important mark. And I mean, I think the two scenes that, that you've talked about as being your favorites are really beautiful. And I love them both as well. 
one of my favorite scenes with Elsa is actually one of the ones, I mean, one with Rosie is one of the ones with just her and Elsa when they're talking about what it means to be a woman. That's exactly what I was going to get to next was going to be the Rosie oh, okay. Elsa stuff. So that worked out perfectly. Oh my gosh, so yeah. those scenes, so you have the two, two instances where we, you know, we see the, the two women, uh, the two central women in Jojo's life at this point, uh, having conversations. The first one is about Elsa's survival and just um, where she's, they mentioned about, oh, maybe we're all ghosts now. And she says, you know, uh, this is, you, you know, you win by staying alive. Basically, you stay alive today, tomorrow, you make, to, you know, to make tomorrow the same. Like as long as someone's alive to oppose them, basically, they, they never really win. And so that one's really focused more on uh, Elsa's kind of plight of being, you know, having to be hidden from, as we learn later on, pass from one household to the next to just keep her out of, uh, off the Nazis radar. But then the second one, as you mentioned, is the whole thing about how really pinpointing the, that Elsa herself is also a child. She hasn't lived. She hasn't done it. She hasn't looked the tiger in the eye or, or any, she hasn't really experienced life because this has been her life for, you know, probably a few years probably. So, so what is it about that scene specifically that, that resonates with you so much? I I think I love the fact that I mean this comes back to a little bit about what we were talking about with the the dinner scene where it's this moment of humanity in the middle of this really terrible situation. So you've got Elsa who's captive, who thinks that this is just how it is now. And why what purpose does my life even serve at this point? Mm-hmm. And she's losing hope. She's been locked up for who knows how long. And um and then you've got Rosie who has her own struggles and her own uh, her own frustrations and her own fears with how things are happening. And she's trying to protect her son, but she's also, she lost her daughter and she's talking about how she's going to watch Elsa. She's going to be the one, she's going to watch Elsa grow up instead of getting to watch her own daughter. Mm-hmm. And even though we find out that, that doesn't get to happen, um, just the fact that that's how she regards Elsa is really is really a really nice um, development of their relationship. And it really makes that whole conversation special because you, you get the sense that Rosie is going to be rooting Elsa on no matter what happens in the war, no matter what happens in life, Rosie is committing to be a mom to Elsa and is going to teach her, you know, she's offering to teach her, like, this is what it means. And these are the things that you're going to get to experience. And she's trying to give her hope, even though Rosie knows things are hard. And who knows if any of these things that she's telling her are actually going to be able to happen. But she knows that this kid cannot lose hope. And she's just going to do everything she can to uh, to make sure that she she still believes that something good can happen and that her life has meaning and that she does have the possibility of a future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things to look forward to beyond, yeah. beyond the, the crawl space in her, her uh, daughter's bedroom. Um, and, and, you know, that's a testament to Ro- Rosie's sort of resilience that she's so like, I wish I, I mean, I'm kind of admire her, her character in the face of all this. I don't, I don't know how she, how she stays that kind of, upbeat and, and, you know, putting up, I mean, obviously it's like, she's putting up, um, she's a, a strong face for her son and all that, but it's like, 
it's it's really admirable how she how she handles this situation with everything within her household with both of these children and it is also to to your point it, it her performance in this movie is it kind of reminds me of the Mahershala Ali thing in Moonlight. Like he's not in that movie a lot. He's only in like the first third and then he's gone. And Rosie's screen time is doled out a little more throughout the course of the film. But similarly, whenever she's not there, she is referenced in some way, shape or form, Uh, whether it's the shoes or whether it's a conversation with Elsa, like she permeates the entire movie. And in a lot of ways, she is kind of the, the beating heart of, of the film. Uh, I also I also think that's a good transition to the Elsa and stuff, the JoJo Elsa relationship. That the the only one that really survives to the to the um, the final moments of the film. So what I loved about this, first of all, is I and this it goes back to Taika's like brilliant satire here is how her introduction plays so perfectly <laughs> like a horror movie, um, like Michael Giacchino's score, who which we haven't mentioned at all yet, which is amazing. Um, it just completely changes for this whole sequence. And it's like, <laughs> it's like you're watching the grudge or something all of a sudden. Um, so what were your, what are your kind of your, your thoughts on that sequence and the way that she right off the bat, uh, proves her, her strength and her, her merit and her, her worth and in that scene, but then actually even kind of a little bit later when they're having the whole conversation and about what are Jews like, and she gets him in essentially a chokehold, um, saying, oh, you know, there are no weak Jews, that whole thing. What are, what are your thoughts on that character's sort of uh, strength right out the gate and how it informs her character and what she's been through? Oh, I love Elsa so much. Yeah, I but too. I think that, yeah, I mean, that introduction, that's that's survival mode for her. Yeah. She's She's playing with this kid because she feels like that's what she needs to do to get through to him. She She remembered him when he was a little kid. So he, even though it's been a long time and he doesn't remember her, she definitely knew who he was. And, um, and so she just does what she feels like she needs to do in that moment to keep him from calling and and ratting her out because she knows that that's instant death for her. Mm -hmm. Um, if, if he's able to do it and it's very funny introduction, but it's also very serious. And that's Mm -hmm. the thing is so much of, of, what happens in their interactions and so much of their conversations, it's really funny. But if you look at the, what's actually happening and the subtext of the situation, there's so much, so much seriousness and so much drama underlying it. And, um, it's, it's the layers are, are great. And I think you really especially see that with Elsa, maybe more than any other character. Well, you have this movie set during World War II in Nazi Germany, and it's kind of this burgeoning friendship and sort of one-sided romance uh, between a, a Jew and a Nazi, kind of. A quasi, a, well, he thinks he's a Nazi. That's the whole. And yeah. I love that conversation, too, later on, where she's like, you are not a Nazi, yeah. Jojo. You're just a mm-hmm. little boy. You know, we sort of mentioned it earlier, who who likes dressing in uniforms and wants to belong to a club. And, um, yeah, I, it's, it's in ideological struggle basically between the two of them. And it's in another way, it's, it's kind of Elsa's fighting for Jojo's soul at a certain point. So it's Elsa and Rosie sort of trying to save this kid from this pervasive dictatorship that's taken over their country. And I I think the way that the, the movie goes back and forth between 
yeah, you know, say say you know, you know what I am. Say it. It's like a Jew, and she's like kazoon tight to, <laughs> to just cutting back and forth between the humor and the, the like. It's just yeah, it's so well done, uh, and it scares the shit out of JoJo, which is fun to watch after watching him sort of um, you know in this Nazi youth environment for the first part of the movie, seeing him kind of cower as well as Adolf is kind of uh, is, is exhilarating in a way too. <laughs> well, what's yeah, <laughs> what's interesting is that you've got Rosie who she doesn't she, she I mean, she's absolutely adamant that Jojo can't know about Elsa because he won't be able to keep his mouth shut mm-hmm. and that that'll be the end of all of them. And then you've got Elsa who Jojo found her by accident. She was trying not to get caught. She didn't want him to know that she was there, but it just it just happened. And. So she found a way to make sure that he would stay silent. And so she's trying to communicate to Rosie that like, hey, it's possible to to deal with this. And it's possible to not, it's possible to, to reason with him and to educate him. She sees that probably because she's closer to his age. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, and, and also she just, she's at the point where, I mean, what else, <laughs> what else can she do? Whereas Rosie is willing to let him become and believe things that are so wrong and terrible because she thinks that that's the only way to save him. She doesn't in some ways. And I mean, I think this is true of, of most parents, like in some ways she doesn't know her son as well as she thinks that she does. And, um, and I think that for Elsa to identify that, you know, there's actually something that can be done here and this can, we can communicate, we can get along. And I think that that's really important. And I think it's interesting that that is coming from someone who is going to be in his life much longer because of course his mother, which we don't know at the time, but his mother will not be there to see him grow up while Elsa will. And Rosie's kind of operating from the it's just a phase mentality i think and just trying to she's trying yeah yeah especially Mm -hmm. you know since she kind i think she hopes or knows or sees that the nazis are on their way out basically and so she's just like once that goes away maybe jojo will kind of come back to me right but she's also willing to Mm -hmm. sacrifice that and to accept that he may not ever come back to being that good thoughtful kid if it's what saves his life. Right. She's willing to accept that. Uh, let's talk about, well, I, I love, well, first of all, I love Elsa's explanation of what Jews are. And she, she says, <laughs> we're like you, but human. Uh, <laughs> some of their early interactions, Jojo being younger than her by several years and walking into the room being like, excuse me, little girl, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> you know, I love that. <laughs> um, just like the little subtleties in their relationship and how, the how in a in a way in kind of a strange way the power of art is what what binds them what what keeps their relationship going is this book that he's working on which it feels like in a way it's kind of the um springtime for hitler of this movie and that mm-hmm. he means it to be serious but it ultimately you know is it, it, it comes across kind of the opposite way it has an unintended reading later on in in the film when he's looking over at the book afterwards after knowing Elsa and realizing wait a minute this is how I this is what I I thought this like just pinpointing just how much he's changed from the beginning of the film but also in the letters from air quotes Nathan uh I I I really think that those are such strong devices to link these characters to give them a reason to continue 
to to talk to give um to give more development on Elsa's backstory as we learn later on with Nathan and uh the fact that she's just basically you know Jojo's kind of inadvertently giving her hope giving her some form of if nothing else entertainment and at best you know reason to keep going motivation to not like slit her own throat with the DJ knife in the little room because as you mentioned she is sort of losing hope at certain points throughout the movie and I think it's 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 a fun reversal or unexpected subversion in a way that Jojo's intentions initially to kind of taunt and and you know um, destroy her is ultimately what kind of saves her in the end yeah well and when he when he changes the tone of the e- right. of the emails, the the letters, and like the first one is, yeah, I'm breaking up with you. I met this other girl. I love when he's like, and we do the we laugh and do the tongue kiss. Like, that's <laughs> such a kid thing, you know. Um, <laughs> it just cracks me up every time. But but when he sees her reaction and he thinks that she's so upset because he said he's going to break up with her, right. he doesn't understand. He can't possibly know that she's upset because she knows that he's toying with her and it's just stirring up the fact that she's lost this person already and she's already had to to deal with that and it's stirring up this this loss and so then when he goes back and he's like oh never mind and she she sees this as like Jojo thinks that he's giving her hope because of Nathan mm-hmm. but she sees this hope of like we're developing a friendship here and this isn't going to have to be a terrible situation. And, um, there's there's more to this kid than, than he's letting on even at this point in the movie. Yeah. He's savable. There's still hope for him. And that's, again, I've said that before, but that's ultimately what this movie comes down to is hope. Yeah. And it's also that moment when she's crying, uh, after the first letter, it's not only like, I think it's also reminding her of what she's lost, but it's also, you know, maybe she was toying with this 10 year old kid because she's like, he can't possibly really believe in this. You know, he's a mm-hmm. he's a he's a child. He's not capable of this kind of. And then he whips out this like level of, in his mind, you know, cruelty to to really try and like, what can I do to crush this girl? He's like, oh, yeah. that's right. Well, and you know, Adolf's even egging him on. Right, like, exactly. Oh, yeah. If she had a heart, this would break it. Too. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and just, you know, her reaction to that kind of gives him that moment of pause. It's the first real moment of compassion he shows towards her in the whole movie. And it, and it sets them on this course to where he, he actually falls in love with her at a certain point. And, you know, that, that I just love the way that well, their relationship builds. Yeah. Well, and this is where you really see how the movie is relevant today. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about how the fact that, I mean, it's insane to me that there are still Nazis in the world. But right. um, but this is where there's really an, an important tie to what we see. And that is that when you have people that are different from you or living lives that you don't agree with or um, or you just you know, like there's a lot of hate in the world and, but it's always interesting when you talk to someone, I'm trying to think of a good example that won't get us into trouble to talk about, but um, let's just take the issue of like illegal immigration in the United States. Sure. Um, 
And it's, it's really interesting when you talk to someone who's just like, we need to shut down the borders. We can't let anybody in illegally. But then when they know someone who has, mm-hmm. who is undocumented, they maybe work with that person or they live near the family and they know that person. They're like, well, for everybody else, but that guy, I mean, I want to, I want to help him out. I really like that guy. And that's the whole point is like, for Jojo, there's this enigmatic, like the Jews are bad, but once he actually starts to get to know one and he starts to really have feelings and care about one, one person, he, he still thinks that the problem is all the Jews, except for this one girl. But that's the whole point is like, once we start to look at people as individuals, it breaks down those barriers of hate and it makes it a lot harder to be against someone and against a group of people. When you start to realize that you care for them as individuals when yeah. you look at them as people instead of as this big group. Yeah. The example that, that came to my mind is just like, you know, the parent who's staunchly against, uh, you know, homosexuality or same sex marriage or whatever until their child comes out and then they're like, okay, I reversed my decision yeah. on <laughs> my position yeah. on, on this issue. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's that kind of thing. It, 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 it has, it makes it hit home in, in a way that, that you, you know, it's easy to, to, make blanket statements on what other people should be doing in their life until you're actually faced with making that happen on an individual level and see witnessing the consequences of what that actually looks like. And exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, we go from this kid who's all about Hitler wants to, his whole mission is to be his best friend, to be in his personal guard, much to Yorkie's <laughs> dismay. Um, oh, I love Yorkie. <laughs> No, I guess I'm just a. I guess I'm just a. I'm just a, a fat. I'm just, I'm just a fat a, kid yeah, in a, a fat, fat kid's, kid's body. body. Yeah, <laughs> it's so great. Um, you know where she, he starts to have like, romantic feelings for her, where she's like, "Oh, you want me to kiss you?" That kind of thing. And she, when she realizes how dirty she looks, which which I think is the real, you know, no, no pun intended, watershed moment for JoJo and his his uh, views on on Jews. He actually lets her bathe in his in their their bathtub that his mom was in earlier, and try you know get dressed and like this person that he was like you're a beast you belong over there in the corner, I'm gonna draw writing you know I'm writing a book about how monstrous you are, and now it's like no no you know you deserve to be treated like a person go ahead and take a bath get you know not feel like you're you know just <laughs> a a disgusting creature shoved in a closet basically. And I think that's a, a huge moment for him uh, and his relationship with Elsa. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's just something so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But I mean, I don't know. There's just something about just that idea of getting clean and taking a bath, taking mm-hmm. a shower or whatever, getting clean and you just become, you feel more human yep. when you've, had that experience like you know i've been out camping where i didn't shower for a week or whatever and you start to feel just like gross and you don't want to be around yourself (laughs) and so for him to give her that and to recognize that that was something that would be really important for her was um was you're right i mean that was a really important moment in their relationship and then of course that leads into I would say the most terrifying moment of the entire movie when the SS shows up. Yeah. And I love one of the details I love about that sequence. Well, it also, it feels like 
completely it feels like it, it it's a huge shift in tone for the movie one because this is the embodiment of basically basically as close as the movie gets to actual adolf showing up at jojo's house uh mm-hmm. but also steven merchant brings this different energy to the scene there's all the heil hitlers like the barrage of heil hitlers <laughs> It's like if you played a drinking game every time every time somebody <laughs> says Heil Hitler, this is the the scene in which you you pass out. Um, well, and that's part of that scene is part of why people think, oh, it's glorifying Nazis, and it's like, don't you understand? This is mocking how right. stupid this is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But like on the one hand, it, it feels like this really kind of broad comedy with Stephen Merchant and all the Heil Hitlers and all of that. But then on the other hand, if you look at it from Elsa's point of view, it's like these are the people who killed her parents. This is yeah. this is why her, you know, we see the scene uh, a little bit. I think it's earlier, yeah, a little bit earlier with the two of them standing out at the window talking about, you know, what are they going to do now? And you know, your dad's out there somewhere, blah blah blah. Looking out at the air raids, and it really kind of it highlights the fact that they're both victims of this war. Just kind of, you know, until until his mom passed away, different sides. He's victim because he got taken in by all this Nazi bullshit. And I feel like that should be the name of the episode, all this Nazi bullshit. And, uh, <laughs> and she obviously more directly as, as, you know, as a Jewish person had that kind of genocide and on the other yeah. side of it. And so her being in that position and having to fight for her own and Jojo's survival, but also having to pose as a, as a German and her having to say Heil Hitler to everybody and kind of like be basically pretending she is one of the enemies, knowing what she's been through. Oh, it's heart wrenching. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in that scene too, I mean, that comes before anything really bad has happened. We know that there's a war going on. We know that Nazis are bad. We know that just because we understand history and we know what happened and we've read the diary of Anne Frank, we know that like, Sure, if someone shows up and catches Elsa, that's going to be a problem. But it hasn't happened. And there hasn't been anything actually bad that has happened in the movie up until that point. And that's where the the real danger finally hits home for Jojo. Because it's now literally at his front door when those guys show up at his house and they start searching. And he's terrified that they're going to find Elsa and that everything's going to be over and it's going to be the end of all of them he he believed, i mean they they wouldn't have killed him he's his kid but he doesn't know that mm-hmm. and and so he's absolutely terrified because for the first time he has to confront the real uh the real issue and the real danger behind what he has been supporting and that's when he starts that's when he really understands that this is bad that what he has been believing in all this time and what he believed 100 percent was the right way to go is actually not right the stakes be- in that moment. the stakes mm-hmm. become personal basically and, and as you said it's right. it is the jumping off point for rosie's death for mm-hmm. the the conclusion of the the war and the the whole end sequence where basically as we were saying earlier where where uh what is it fraulein Brom just like sending kids out there um where yeah. all hell is breaking loose and the nazis are sort of just floundering to to you know it's it's well basically it's de- uh to quote yorkie it's definitely not a good time to be a nazi which <laughs> what a great line um and again as we were saying about nazis today that just having that line in the movie i mean it's 
I, the people saying it's glamorizing and I'm like, are you watching this? Did you see any of the movie? Did we because, see the same movie? You, right, exactly. Yeah. Or did you just see, you know, they lose the war, one, they lose the war. They're all <laughs> idiots. They have this, these bizarre, really like childish notion, adults with like talking about Jews with horns and, you know, <laughs> I just think it's, it, it's uh, so, it's so crazy to me when I, when I would see that on Twitter or whatever, that people being offended by this movie. I'm like, are you serious? Because mm-hmm. this is like, all this movie is saying is, guess what? We're all people. Why don't we just love <laughs> each other instead of being like, oh, I don't like this group of people. Let's t- do away with that or let's judge them or whatever. Why don't you just, let's just be people and I'll get, let's just all get along kind of thing. It's just, how do you look down on that message? How, are, who, who is this? Who are these people that see this movie? So I'm on a little tirade now, but who are these people that <laughs> no, see this movie you, that yeah. has such, it's, it's bursting with heart and humanity and, and it's like, you know, I don't I don't understand. It's it's actually kind of uh, in a way to me kind of the most unlikely feel good movie of last year that you come out feeling sort of um, emboldened. You're like, yeah, that's right. You go, Taika. Like, why don't right. why, well, let's stop oh, tearing some people yeah. down all the time? Yeah, well, and it's because it leaves off on such a positive moment. Like, right. So the war ends basically mm-hmm. germany loses yeah jojo goes home and tells elsa oh um just sorry germany won you have to stay he has that lie because he's afraid that she's gonna leave if she knows the truth and he's gonna be all alone and he doesn't want that he doesn't want to be alone and he also doesn't want to lose her because he loves her mm-hmm. and um so what i what i think is really interesting about the way that like you have to watch you have to watch that whole ending sequence from both of their perspectives because when he comes back and he's just like, okay, well I've got a plan to get you out. And he thinks like, this is totally fine. And this is normal. He does not understand. He can't possibly understand how terrified she is. Mm -hmm. And so he thinks he's being cute when she asks, (laughs) is it dangerous out there? And he has that callback to what his mom had said when he asked the same question in a situation that was very low stakes because he just, you know, he had been injured, but nothing was going to happen if he went outside other than some people might make fun of him. He doesn't understand that she's terrified that she could still be taken and and killed. Mm -hmm. And so when he says extremely, because he's being playful and cute, he doesn't realize how that comes across to her. And so it's like, if you watch that scene and really look at both of their perspectives on it, it really is just like, Oh my gosh, I would smack him too. <laughs> I was I even thinking that there, when she know? steps out there, I'm like, you better hit him across the head or something. <laughs> he deserves to be yeah. smacked across the face. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> as, he, as, as he admits, he's like, yeah, I probably deserve that. But to, to yep. back it up a second, like even, you know, before he, he take, takes her outside like that and he's like, I have a plan. Um, him saying to her, obviously lying, that Germany won the war. It, it's such a beautiful moment because the way this story starts that's all he wants in the world. And now he's saying it like so mournfully, just like, and, and out of desperation for fear of losing Elsa, that it's like, it's actually the worst thing he could possibly hear himself say that Germany won the war in that situation. And I think that it's such, it's such a great way to highlight um, how, how Jojo's been, you know, transformed through this whole experience. I mean, obviously the death of your mother will do that to you, but 
uh, just in general, I feel like it's it's a great great way of giving him, you know, being be careful what you wish for kind of moment where he this he gets what he he thought he wanted and he realizes again he he sees it in action and he realizes this is not what I want at all. Um, so I, I just another I just love that moment. really yeah, and another really brilliant moment from Roman Griffin mm-hmm. Davis who oh, is that. just he, I mean he has so many of them throughout the film, but just. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That mournful look where his eyes are kind of filling up with tears as he says it. And he knows that it's terrible that he's saying it, but he does not know what else to do. He's completely at a loss. He doesn't have anyone he can go to for advice right now. Mm -hmm. And he just is so, um, so emotional. And it's just really, really beautifully played by Roman. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite moments, I think, for Jojo as a character. Uh, And then, of course, they step outside as Rosie sort of seated earlier in the movie, dancing is for, for, you know, for people who are free. So they start to dance inexplicably to David Bowie. So I have my question for you, Karen, is why is Bowie so perfect for this moment, considering it's, uh, you know, anachronistic, <laughs> as, as is a lot of the music. But what is it about Heroes that makes it so perfect for that moment? Well, that's the thing. I mean, we can all be heroes. Anybody has that, that capacity to be a hero. And for the two of them, without even knowing it, they were heroes for each other. Mm-hmm. And they got each other through the war. I just, sorry, I, I get emotional thinking no, I about know, it. I, know. I do. I'm, like, I just, oh, I, I sob at that scene every single time. Oh, I love and, it. I love it so much. and the fact that they're playing Bowie's German version of right. it is just like, oh. Oh, this is so perfect. I really want to talk to that music supervisor. But oh um, yeah, the, the sound. I've listened to you know. Obviously, I do a lot of writing during the day, and I listen to a lot of soundtracks and scores. And there was a period where I was sort of had both of them for Jojo Rabbit in my regular rotation, just because. I, I, yeah, the music is so Im- impeccable, and the soundtrack and like I said, Giacchino score. Just yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but but yeah, I think that. I think that that song choice, I mean, first of all, David Bowie is just such a great person to, to reference. Um, and actually now that I'm thinking about it, it's the second, at least the second world war two movie where Bowie song is anachronistically used. I'm thinking of Inglorious Bastards. So there's something about World War II and David Bowie, I guess, that just goes hand in hand. Um, But yes. Well, he's hopeful and and he's, everybody know, like you, even if you don't necessarily, even if you're not a Bowie fan, like there's just something about his music that is just, it's timeless and timely at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and it just, the messages of his songs are, they just, yeah, it, it's perfect for this time where you're looking at what's next, what happens now. And yeah, I think that that particular song was a great choice because we all can be heroes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, a movie that starts out with a little boy talking to Hitler and, and getting all psyched up about being a Nazi, going running around hiling Hitler all over the town. And it <laughs> ends with David Bowie and these two children kind of like in this dance of freedom and liberation from like this, you know, hateful regime. It's, it's, it's a great movie. I mean, it's one that I, every time I watch it, I, I kind of noticed more details and I appreciate it even more. And 
I yeah, I just yeah, I'm, I'm glad it got an Oscar at least, if nothing else. And it, you know, just the way it sends you out into the theater with the Rilke quote, the "Let everything mm-hmm. happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going, no feeling is final." It's just you just it sends you out into the world, being like, "All right, go spread positivity and and you know accept people, love, not hate." And and I love that that message, especially. I mean, and this was obviously pre-coronavirus, but especially, you know, in the last few years, without mentioning a particular person's name, <laughs> having this message out there, I think is, is in a way even more potent than it would have been several years ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's something that we see all the time. And I don't know, it's interesting, just this, the making of this movie. I mean, I had the opportunity to interview some of the people that worked on it um, from Michael Giacchino to Tom Eagles, the editor, to Robinson, the production designer, um, Maya Rubio, who did the costumes. It's, I mean, in what I do, I have the opportunity to talk to a lot of people that make movies. And obviously they're enthusiastic about their work and they're happy to talk about the things that they do. But I've never talked to a group of uh, department heads for a film that were so over the moon in love with the movie that we were talking about and that had nothing but just amazing, wonderful things to say about the, the production, about the director. I mean, nobody says negative things in these types of interviews, right. but usually, but just the way that people talked about it, it just sounded like the most magical place in the world <laughs> to be on that set every day. And the thing is, it didn't feel like any of them were just saying that because that's what they were supposed to say. Like they really just became this family and they loved it. And, and I think that that really shows through in, in the final product. And I think it's just such a special film, both for what you see on the screen and just for, the love that people had for it behind the scenes. Yeah. And I think the, the, that sort of positivity and uh, that sort of vibe that the movie gives off, I think it, it is kind of seems emblematic of like Taika's brand in a lot of ways. Like I feel like you see that messaging and that kind of carry on through not only his films, but also like, you, you know, his persona online and like the way he, he is in interviews and things like that. He, he seems like he is, genuinely trying to put something good out into the world and like say something and contribute something positive. And that's why when this movie came out and, you know, I loved it as much as I did, uh, and it got Oscar nominations and it won, you know, Taika's an Oscar winner now. And, you know, the fact that he's now doing another Thor, the fact that he's doing Star Wars and the fact that I'm sure he's going to put in more original stuff like Jojo in between those, it, it always, you know, it's always really really uh, encouraging when you see people like that getting those kinds of opportunities and and the fact that his career has sort of blown up just in the midst of Jojo Rabbit and Thor and all this I think that's that's definitely a good sign and I, I look forward to what he has you know coming up next and how that continues to carry through and it, in addition to his irreverence and obviously that's kind of <laughs> what he's known for most it feels like he brings a real heart to the movies that he makes yeah well his next movie is called Next Goal Wins with Michael Fassbender um and that's supposed to be out this fall, I think. But, um, but yeah, I think that it's interesting because so often these 
these directors that make a couple of movies and then suddenly they're like a big household name. Mm -hmm. You hear stories about them. They're kind of this like there's this accepted thing when it comes to male directors. And of course, he's not a white man, so it's different. Sorry. But um, but there's just kind of this accepted assholeness from certain directors and like especially ones that make really good films, you're you hear stories about them being just tyrants and dictators on the set. And we're just kind of like, well, okay, but I mean, it's fine. Separate the art from the artist and he makes great art. And, and so many of them get ahead by being just awful people. But with Taika, it's like the opposite. It's like part of the reason that he has had so much success is because he's such an immense joy to be around being in his presence and having a conversation with him. Like you just can't walk away from that being in a bad mood. Mm -hmm. He won't let you. (laughs) And it's just, it's like he, it's like he just has this magic about him and he just kind of casts spells on people. And he's, he's had this success. I mean, I honestly think I haven't seen any tests to prove it, but I honestly do believe that he would test at a genius level. He, the quality and the things that he puts into his films and the level of thought and detail that go into them that is like you don't notice it on the second and third and fourth viewings even. And it's like it's it's pretty amazing. But then when you couple that with the fact that he's just a genuinely nice person mm-hmm. that really loves people, it's it's just incredible. Like people like him just don't exist. Right. You know? Right. And let alone achieve this level of success in a business that, yeah. as you were saying, doesn't normally reward being a good person. Yeah, exactly. Um, is there anything else about Jojo rabbit we haven't covered? I just wanted to point one, one last thing I wanted to say is that I love that Yorkie apparently realizes that he's immortal <laughs> during the climax of the movie. He's like, oh, I guess I can, I never, can never die. die. And that he really needs a cuddle. <laughs> that was, I just wanted to, I wanted to end it on a Yorkie note because he is just <laughs> the most unabashedly adorable part of this movie. Um, but mm-hmm. other than Yorkie and his, uh, and his irresistibility in this movie, is there anything about Jojo Rabbit we haven't covered that you wanted to make sure we mentioned? Oh, I would. I actually would love to have spent a little bit more time talking about JoJo and Yorkie and and their friendship and how Yorkie just kind of pops in at moments when you just really need him there. And yeah. I would love to have seen him more, but I'm glad that he's not in it more because he might have overstayed his welcome a little bit. Yeah, he feels kind of like um, it's it's weird because JoJo has Adolf as his imaginary friend, but it also kind of feels like. Our, uh, our, I almost said Archie, but uh, Yorkie is <laughs> is kind of Jiminy Cricket, like popping up and like, hey, what's going on, Jojo? Oh, mm-hmm. good for you. And he's in the Nazis and he's a soldier with them, but he's just kind of hanging out. He doesn't really know what's happening. And so you can't really like shift any blame onto Yorkie for any of this because he's just, you know, doing his thing. I don't know. He, it's just like he's the yeah. only character that's completely de- devoid of any culpability in anything. He's just kind of floating around like... I completely disconnected from everything happening around him. And I love that. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, it's funny about Yorkie because he is a Nazi. He does what he's told to do. He doesn't put up any fight about being handed a gun and sent off to shoot people. He's just like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do now. That's what I'll do. He doesn't question it. But yet he's so full of love and life that you don't even think about him as being a bad person. He's just doing what he's told. And I think that that's really important because 
there are a lot of people that became Nazis. Like, this is going to be controversial to say this. I'm scared to say it. But there were a lot of people who just did it because they just didn't say no. And I'm not going to say they were good people because they weren't. But... (laughs) But it does humanize the the people that were just kind of pulled into it. Right. Yeah. And and I think that we see that now. I mean, there are people in my own family that feel certain ways about politics that I'm like, but I know you and you're a good person. And I don't re- I can't reconcile how you feel about this thing with who I know you to be. Mm-hmm. And I think Yorkie's a little bit of that, but he's just so darn cute and sweet that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the fact that he's willing to go out and shoot Americans and <laughs> thinks that the Russians are going to come and eat their dogs. <laughs> <laughs> wait, is that, I think and, it's uh, yeah, have sex oh, with wait, the wait, dogs wait. and then eat have their... Have sex with the dogs and... I don't remember, yeah, but yeah. Eat the babies? Eat something like that. <laughs> it's some, eat our it's babies some, and shit. It's, it's, it's yeah. disturbing either way, but it's like extra disturbing in the order that he says it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's also, yeah, he's never really like, he's obviously following orders, but he doesn't ever really seem judgmental when, when he's, um, when Jojo's like, Oh, I have the, this, you know, this Jewish girl that lives in my, in my oh, house. Good for you. Yeah, good for you. Girlfriend. Girlfriend. Yeah. He's totally, uh, accepting of, um, of Jojo and yeah. it doesn't really seem hateful, particularly in any way whatsoever. But the movie also does a really good job early on of establishing why, kids would be drawn into this for lack of a better term cult, uh, Mm -hmm. that the Nazi, you know, regime was sort of, uh, enticing them with, it's an adventure and you get to feel empowered. And, you know, it's, you could see why it's basically them. It's basically an an entire government telling you you're special basically. So of course, if you're a little kid and you're feeling insecure, you're feeling lost or whatever. And, these people come to you and they like, hey, don't you know you're 100% Aryan? You're a thousand more advanced than any other race. And we're going to recruit you and we're going to do all this stuff in service of Germany. And you get you all hyped up. Oh, let's go burn some books. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to see how even kids like Jojo, like Yorkie, with good hearts who, in their right minds, wouldn't be doing that or participating in those kinds of activities, how they would sort of fall under that, that, uh, that spell, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and then they're there to support each other, but neither of them is going to tell the other one, like, hey, this doesn't seem like the right thing, you know? Yeah. But then Yorkie is kind of a little bit of that voice when he's just like, well, we've got bigger issues right now than the fact that there's a Jewish girl living in your house. Right. You know? And, um, well, he's yeah. A, yeah, he's the one that informs Jojo that Hitler's gone and apparently he's been doing really bad stuff and not telling us all about... <laughs> about it um Uh yeah god so great well Uh, and it's funny like yorkie is so he's just so go with the flow but he's really tuned into what's happening jojo is not yeah exactly so So, um karen peterson if there's nothing else can you tell people where they can find you on social media uh sure yeah you can find me on twitter and instagram and letterboxd at karen m peterson well, Karen, thank you so much for coming back to the show to talk about this. I didn't haven't covered it on the show up to this point. And even though I spent all of last fall and the early part of this year really loving it, I'm so I'm glad we got the opportunity to talk about it. And we did so about as long as the movie is. So <laughs> I didn't anticipate we were going to go so long. But in a way now, I'm not surprised. We both had a lot a lot of uh, a lot of things to point out about. Basically, this was just like a two hour love fest. Like, and then this part was so great. 
And remember this performance? I oh, warned I you. I could time. talk yeah, about I know. this movie forever. I know. That combination. <laughs> the both of us have a lot to say about Jojo Rabbit. But hopefully it was, it was fun for people to listen to. So um, thank you for coming on. We'll, we'll definitely have you on again at some point. Uh, assuming we ever get the movie industry back to normal, maybe about something new like this or maybe about an older release. <laughs> we'll, we'll just have to keep in touch and figure out what, uh, what, what will be a good movie to talk about next time. Well, hey, New Mutants is supposedly coming out in August now. So. I, I'll believe it when I see it. At this, I have to until I'm sitting in a theater and the, the credits start rolling. I'm not going to believe in it. And at this point, for that movie, it's not like I'm sure it's not going to be great. I'm not. I don't think it's going to be good. There's no way it's it's good and they hold on to it this long under any circumstance. I just want to mm. see it so I can get a. a, a you know, cross that off my list. Do you have any faith in now this is not related to Jojo Rabbit whatsoever, but do you have any <laughs> faith in New Mutants being moderately decent? Like where do you think it's gonna fall on the spectrum? I think it actually could turn out to be decent. Um the fact that it doesn't sound like they've made any changes to the movie while they've been like since the last four release dates have been announced, I'm not sure how I feel right. about that. But I mean, so many of the release dates have not been because the movie wasn't ready. That's true. It's been because of like acquisitions and pandemic, not what like the studio. Yeah. And <laughs> the studio not wanting to compete with like star Wars or whatever. So, um, so yeah, I mean, so much of that has not been a lack of faith. And honestly, I think the fact that they're still giving it a theatrical release date rather than just pushing it out to VOD or Hulu or whatever, to me, that actually says that the studio has some faith in the movie. Yeah, that's a good so, point. So, I don't know. That's a good point. I mean, who knows? Maybe it'll come out and then be amazing and we'll all be like, how did this happen? Against all <laughs> I odds. Mean, Ad Astra after- <laughs> had five release dates and that turned out to be great. I loved yeah. that one. So. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Well, yeah. well, maybe we'll have to do some <laughs> kind of New Mutants follow-up <laughs> next time then. All um, right. <laughs> but thanks again, Karen. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was fun. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the